Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen welcomes Linda Chapman to the show to discuss clinical applications of attachment therapy in children and adolescents. Part two will be released on June 7th. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chadak with another guest to speak with us about application of attachment theory to clinical practice. My guest today is Linda Chapman. She is a retired board certified art therapist. She is living in Redwood Valley, Northern California. She has been in the past affiliated with the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She was there for 25 years where she held clinical faculty and research appointments. Uh, She also is a nationally recognized expert in art therapy and play therapy with children who are victims of violence, child abuse, and trauma. She's the author of the book, Neurobiologically Informed Trauma Therapy with Children and Adolescents, Understanding Mechanisms of Change. She's also written numerous peer-reviewed papers on child therapy, play therapy, art therapy, trauma therapy, and um, I am super excited to have her here today. She's been an adjunct faculty at many universities and taught and lectured throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe. She's also a part of a group called Playful Dyads, which uh, she will be talking about in our interview today. I'm so thrilled that she is going to be here with us. I learned of Linda's work while I was doing a previous series about using expressive arts in attachment-based therapy. And so stay tuned. She will be coming right up. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. This July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock launches the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We've designed an experience in a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the development Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So Linda, hi, thanks for joining us today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm so happy to have you here today. You bring such a, you know, history of involvement with neuroscience, you know, in general, in addition to your skills as an art therapist and play therapist. And because of that, I thought it would be nice if listeners could hear 
just about the trajectory of your career. I know in one of the uh, papers or chapters, I'm not sure, I've been reading so much of your wonderful information. You talk about your interest in trauma going all the way back to 1976 when children, uh, there was a situation with children uh, where they were kidnapped and buried in a boxcar in uh California. Tell us a little, let's start, you know, there a little bit about all of that. Okay, sure. Thank you. Um, Yes, I was studying psychology and art therapy. And back in 1976, there were these children that were kidnapped in California and buried in a boxcar. And I, when I read the story in the newspaper, I wondered what are going to be the psychological effects on these children going through this traumatic experience. And I followed the work of Dr. Lenore Ter from UCSF, who followed these children over 20 years to see what were the effects of this traumatic experience on them and their minds and bodies and functioning. So she kind of paved the way for my interest in early childhood trauma. And I began my work at University of California, San Francisco in child psychiatry. And I was an inpatient on an inpatient unit where it was primarily an assessment unit. So Mm -hmm. I got to learn from all these experts a lot about child development, a lot about sensory motor integration. We had art therapists, music therapists, drama therapists, the whole gamut of clinicians all the time assessing these children for a period of two or three months. And then they would devise a treatment plan and those treatment plans would be implemented. Yes. When that, so that was inpatient child psychiatry, where I really learned a really great foundation. And then I was recruited over to San Francisco General Hospital because the physicians there noticed that back in the 80s, there was a lot of gang violence. And these youth were coming in the hospital with repeated injuries and there was no treatment for them. There were long follow up, long waiting lists for any kind of treatment. And most of the people couldn't afford private treatment. So. Dr. Grossman, who was the chief of pediatrics, invited me to come over to the hospital and create a program on the pediatric unit that would address the psychological component of trauma in these gang violent youth and children who were coming in for child abuse and accidents and things. And back then, there was nothing about acute trauma in the literature at all. So I had no template. I had no way to know how to go about this. So I began to give the children drawing materials And the first thing they began to do is to draw their story. Mm -hmm. And so then I would talk to them once they had the story in visual form, then they could put the words to it. But what I found is that they couldn't talk about things unless they had the visual, because we know that all that's stored in the right hemisphere. So you have to have some right hemisphere access to access those traumatic images, sensations, memories, all those things. So I was there for 12 years working with, in the Department of Surgery, working with neurologists, with neuroscientists. I was studying with Alan Shore. I was very much following Dan Siegel around to all the conferences he went to and Michael DeBellis and all these different researchers. And I kind of began to hone my intervention for these youth. Um, They began to tell me their stories, but I would notice that if I asked them, for example, to draw what happened, 
they would get flooded. But if I asked them to draw what happened, why did you have to come to the hospital? They wouldn't get flooded and overwhelmed. Mm. So I refined this, this intervention, this acute intervention over time at San Francisco General Hospital. And then I left there when I was really going through a lot of my own PTSD symptoms from being in that environment for 12 years. Yes. And I moved and started a private practice where, again, I was able to develop this acute intervention with a bottom-to-top processing model of therapy into a long-term model of treatment for complex trauma and treating children over time. So I've actually been very fortunate to see children in the acute setting and then also work with children over time, which has given me a really comprehensive understanding of how children experience, integrate, and heal from these traumatic experiences. Yeah, so it, it is, it's, it's such an amazing journey that you have been on and all of the, you know, this coming together of working with other leaders in the field who are on the cutting edge of uh, neuroscience and, you know, before the 90s and the decade of the brain and, and before some of this became more common knowledge, as I was reading your your history and, and some of your papers, I was like, wow, you you were really there when all this was emerging. It must have been very exciting. Well, it, it was very exciting and the learning curve was very high, but it was also really amazing for me to see how the neuroscience applied to treatment. And how yes. that knowledge informs so much of why treatment works and the treatment models that don't. So it was a really exciting time. And I owe a great deal of gratitude to these pioneers and these people who were doing all this research because there, you know, it was all cutting edge and there wasn't a lot of funding for this type of thing back then. Yes, yes. Now, I did review your uh, 2011 paper about the effectiveness of art therapy interventions in reducing PTSD um, in pediatric trauma patients. And so when looking at that, um, you were calling your model at that time the Chapman Art Therapy Treatment Intervention. And that is now, if I'm understanding you correctly, that is like your shorter term model that you were using back then before you evolved in with with your neurodevelopmental art therapy, which we're going to talk about more. That's right. That intervention is a one hour or less intervention designed to help children going through an acute traumatic experience be able to access the traumatic memories and create a visual narrative followed by a verbal narrative. And what I found is that the symptoms go away immediately in children as young as two and a half, all the way up through teens. And I've even done it with adults. Unfortunately, that study that that paper refers to, there were a lot of problems with the randomization because Mm -hmm. one of the people involved had some problems and the randomization didn't go well, but it's very effective and it's used all over the world by many people. And it, reduces the, the um, acute symptoms immediately. Well, you know, it should, listen to me, it should be used in every pediatric hospitalization situation for something traumatic. I could, I don't know how, you said it's very widely used, so that's good. So you, you would think like every child life specialist and people that are working in that environment, it, it's astounding what you you were able to accomplish with just such a short amount of time. 
Yes, I wish that someone would replicate the study um, because it's so effective and it works so well, but the study doesn't really reflect that, except in the area of avoidance and numbing symptoms. That was significant. Yes. Which again, makes sense because you're asking them to talk and to draw the, the story. But um, it was so effective in the hospital setting that that's why I got invited to do the study because the Department of Surgery said the kids that she sees get better, use less medication, everything is way better when they get that intervention than if they don't. So that's why I got invited to do my study there was based on what the surgeons saw in the patients. That's so wonderful. And that you were allowing them to a a way to integrate these traumatic experiences and reduce PTSD symptomology with that. Yes, it was a very effective intervention. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, then you, I know you already mentioned Dan Siegel, but you, you have said in the early 90s, you know, you, you started following his work and going to his lectures and things like that. Um, so tell us a little bit about that time period, because this is, you know, we talk about the 90s, as I mentioned earlier, the decade of the brain, and this information is exploding about neurobiology. So what was your path during those years? Well, I was very much following uh, Dan Siegel and Alan Shore, Michael DeBellis, because these people were really looking at the uh, Michael DeBellis looked at the sort of the biological level of yes. things, but Dan was writing about the mind and, and these things. And then Alan was talking about a lot of attachment dynamics and things like that, plus right brain psychotherapy and things. And so I found that my intervention, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't have the language to put to exactly what was going on. For example, when children sometimes begin to talk about their traumas, they'll start to cry and then they'll start to laugh at the same time. And so I went to the neurologist and said, what is this? And she said, that pseudobulbar affect, this is what it is. And she explained it to me. So I found that these were the people who could explain to me what I was seeing in the clinical setting so that I could put language to it. And so I was just going to child and adolescent psychiatry conferences. I presented at a couple of them. And Dan and, and Siegel and Alan Shore came to my presentations and you know they gave me feedback. And um, with the gang violent teens, for example, these kids would sit there and tell me that when I'd come to a certain part in the intervention, it's what's it going to be like when you get released from the hospital. They would just look at me and say, well, we're going to just go shoot people. And I would work with them through this thing until they were like, well, wait a minute, we can't do that. And we would sit around and talk about, I'm not teaching a moral imperative. I'm not telling them they shouldn't do these things. The way that the intervention works, it accesses those higher structures of the brain, the prefrontal part that has wisdom, judgment, consequences, all those things, we were able to access neurologically those parts of the brain that are really underdeveloped even in teens. And so it was yes. really fascinating to be able to further understand exactly neurobiologically and neurologically what was going on in this intervention that I was doing. Yes, and I'm sure that they appreciated the opportunity to also collaborate with you. Like you, you were taking the theory and the science and I sometimes call it operationalizing it into the Mm -hmm. clinical setting. And um, this, 
Yeah, that's so let, just so the listeners are clear, backing up just a second. Why don't you briefly explain um, that that first intervention that you used in the hospital? Like, what did you do in that hour? Um, yes. And I think this is helpful for the listeners because you don't have to use it only in the hospital. I have friends who are psychiatrists who have twins and they would come home from school just in tears about something. And she would sit them down and have them do this intervention. And she'd say it was over and they didn't weren't even upset anymore. So you can use it for a lot of ways. It doesn't only have to be for hospitalized children. But what it is, is it's a very brief intervention that's based on bottom to top processing of information. So it begins with a random scribble where I would put a piece of paper in front of the child and say to them, when I say go, I want you to just scribble all over this paper. And when I say stop, you stop. It's a no fail thing that they can do. It's a way to engage them in motor activity. Um, but the other thing it does is it accesses the right hemisphere. It, the visual, it accesses the visual system. Yes. The, and then I take, I say, okay. And then I move, remove that paper and put the next one down. And I ask them, can you tell me, draw what happened, why you had to come to the hospital? So they will draw the image and I don't really ask them anything about it. If they start talking about it, I certainly speak to them, but I just yes. try to save the dialogue until, and then I take that one away. And the next one is um, introduces the concept of the helper. So this drawing would be, would you please draw what happened next? Who came along to help? So they will draw that. And then I'll yes. remove that one. And then the next one is open-ended on purpose. And I ask them, can you draw what happened next? Now, 90% of the children will draw one drawing here, and then we move to the last drawing, which is what will it be like when the doctor says you can go home? But some children in that open-ended one, if they have a lot of procedures and surgeries and things, they might draw six or seven pictures about mm -hmm. what happened next. So it gives them that freedom to express whatever they want, but I never ask them to draw anything that's not in the image, or that's not in their own visual field, because yes. I may actually create traumatic memories by eliciting things. So I go with their narrative. And then once they create the visual narrative, I put the papers all up and I show them the scribble and say, this was our warm up. And then I point to the image and I say, can you tell this part of the story? And they say to me, yes, I was standing on the corner and then here comes the affect. And they just begin to sob. And this car just came and it hit me. But you see, that's what we're doing neurobiologically or neurologically is we're accessing from the lower. Now we're going into limbic. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, is there anything else you want to say about this? Yes, that person who hit me is a dumb, bad, stupid person, and I hate them. And I always separate out the perpetrator from the behavior. And I say, the person might not be a bad person, but they did a bad thing. They hit mm -hmm. a boy with a car and they drove away or whatever. So what I'm doing is normalizing as much as possible. And then I pick up the next picture and ask them to tell that pick part of the story. And we go through the whole narrative and I correct misperceptions along the way. Like they might have a misperception about, well, the doctor said they're going to cut off my leg someday. And I'll say, well, you got some mixed up information when you were maybe on medication or coming from surgery. And, and that's not what's going to happen. And we'll get your doctor in here to talk to you about that. Even some of the gang violent teens that are shot and gunshot wounds will say to me, they stole my gold jewelry. They took it. They robbed me. And I'll say, wait a minute. No, no, no. It's in a special envelope in the hospital. And when you get discharged, you'll go home. So I'm constantly correcting the misinformation they have and misperceptions about things. And then the last one about what's it going to be like when you go home. 
With the younger children, they'll usually say, well, I'm going to go home and everybody's going to play with me and they're going to wait on me hand and foot and everything. And I tell them, well, that's probably going to happen for about one day. Everybody's <laughs> going to get busy. So we've got to give you some toys and some things. And I help them organize around what it's really going to be like to be stuck in a bed at home. And But with the, the interesting thing with the gang violent teens was, is when I got to the part about what's it going to be like when you go home, they would all say to me, I'm never going to go out of my house again. I'm never going to get shot again. I'm never going to hang out with my friends. And because they use action-oriented coping mechanisms, which means they're going to go out and do stuff, I would yes. use action-oriented therapy where I would say to them, okay, stand up and you be you and I'm going to be your friend and I'm going to tell you we're going to go hang out and we're going to get even and you tell me no. And they'll stand up and they'll start out with like, no, I don't want to go. And I'll say, oh, what's the matter with you? Because I know what the friends say. And pretty soon they're just screaming at me. You don't know what it's like to have a chest tube. And you don't know what it's like to go through this. And I'm never going out. And I'll say, that sounds like no. And I know it's hard to believe, but these teenagers would come back to the hospital to get their staples out or stitches. And they would track me down in that hospital and whisper in my ear, thank you for helping me do the thing about the friends. Because the they were, that, they, sorry, they were the then prepared for that. <laughs> Well, it was one thing that was really surprising to me, but the other thing that's even more surprising was these mm -hmm. gang violent teens were able to access those frontal structures where they would literally get up in the middle of the session and open the door and tell all their friends in the hospital standing out in the hallway, don't get the baseball bats and go on the muni bus tonight and hit kids. I'll tell you why later, but don't do that. And that's why I got invited by the CDC to do this, because they saw this as prevention. We stopped a lot of kids from re-perpetrating, and there was this revolving door syndrome with people coming back with a similar injury in a very short amount of time. And that did not happen once we did this intervention. So it was a violence prevention for those teens as well as an intervention for their trauma. It's just so fascinating. So, you know, you've given us the step by step, you know, what would you how would you want to sum up why you think it was so effective? You, you've alluded to, you know, it, it accessed different parts of the brain and things like that. But what you know, if you had to say this is really why this worked, what would you say? The main thing that it makes it work so well is that all of the traumatic imagery and all the traumatic sequelae is stored in the right hemisphere. The only way you're going to access that is through nonverbal modalities. And once they create the visual narrative, you, I would have children stand up and just say to me, oh, it feels so good to get this outside of me. So you see, they're able to externalize yes. it. So now they're talking about an external event instead of an internal event. So they can tolerate the affect because the image contains the affect. It holds the affect that they can't tolerate. Mm -hmm. So then they're able to verbalize about the images rather than these sensations that are sometimes really scary or overwhelming or re-triggering. They didn't dissociate. There was It was just completely a concrete experience of getting it outside of themselves in a narrative and then the verbal narrative. And what Dan Siegel says is the narrative, the coherent narrative is the key element in integrating traumatic experiences. So they were able to do that through the drawing and then the retelling in it incorporates the verbal. Mm -hmm. And they would just, right after the doctor would sometimes come in and they would just look at the doctor and go, I'm all better now. And the doctor wow. would look at me like, I can't believe this. 
because wow. they were sitting 20 minutes ago with the sheet over their head and they wouldn't even look at anyone. They wouldn't talk. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't ambulate. They wouldn't do anything. It's just so it's incredible. remarkable. And, it's, and I hope that someday somebody will replicate the study in the medical setting because I think that it could be utilized more widely than it is. It doesn't cost anything. It's, it uses minimal materials, minimal amount of time. Yeah, I'm astonished. You know, it, it, it almost sounds too good to be true. And if I didn't know your background and your credentials and, uh, you know, what you've published and what you've studied, I'd be like, hmm, I don't know. This sounds too good to be true, but it's not, is it? Well, it's very simple, but which can lead us into sort of the theory of what we're talking about is that I really have a strong belief that the organism knows what it needs and the organism seeks out what it needs to heal and to be mm -hmm. the organism is a, a trajectory toward wholeness. And yes, and yes. So I put a lot of faith in the fact that these children taught me what they needed. I didn't come in there. OK, I know this is what you need and I'm going to have you do this. I just brought them art materials and they showed me they began to draw their stories. I didn't even ask them in the beginning. And so they taught me what they needed, really. So it was initially uh, quite non-directive and, and, and then you're, you're seeing patterns and, and you're, you're putting, you know, some steps together that, that seem to produce this for the kids. Exactly. I saw that when they were just free to do it, there was a lot of flooding and they would get really bogged down. So then I got, I got to contain some of this in a directive that helps them not get so overwhelmed. And once I put those directives in there, then it, it really helped a lot. They didn't get overwhelmed. They didn't get flooded. They didn't, um, I've never had a child want to stop in the middle of it ever. Mm -hmm. and in my research, 92% of the kids completed the entire intervention. So it shows you that even it's not something they don't want to do. They want to do this. Yeah, it's very inspiring to hear you speak of this because I think we've, one thing I really hear in what you're saying is um, I was a scientist. Like I was, I was watching what worked, tracking it, looking for patterning, looking for, you know, what seemed to help rather than I went in and did these, this five manualized steps or whatever. I mean, it, 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 it just strikes me as truly a scientific endeavor on your part. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. It's, it's just wonderful. Um, and as you said, creating that coherent autobiography, there's so much in what you said, like creating that coherent autobiographical narrative. Yes. You know, you're, um, you know, the, the right brain to left brain integration that we talk about in EMDR and, and other mm -hmm. models. Um, and you're, you're finding this way to do this in this just very simple, but elegant process. So when you were figuring that all out, were you in the study group yet with, with Alan Shore or, or were you just, just kind of going along, figuring this out on your own? Like what, what was happening? Well, after about 12 years at San Francisco general hospital, I was pretty burned out. And so I. And traumatized. I'm really, sure. Yes. Oh my gosh. I had secondary traumatization or vicarious trauma, whatever we want to call yeah, it. It was really tough. And so I moved and I built myself a studio and I began a private practice there. And that's where I started taking that short term intervention and developing it into a long term model of treatment based on the same concepts. 
And yes. at that time, I was beginning my tenure study group with Alan Shore. And so Alan really informed me so much about taking this and expanding it to an attachment-based sort of model of treatment for complex trauma or children. Most of my clients were really severely disturbed teens, a lot of them, and um, children with a lot of different kind of problems. And I found that using this attachment theory and I do some really unusual things, but they work so well. I was able to then develop this treatment model. It's a four-stage treatment model. Um, it's called neurodevelopmental art therapy. And yes. for the listeners who want to know more about this, one of my colleagues, one of my former students, Carrie McCarthy, has taken this and she's working on it now to create training and all these things. And it's called Startup Art Therapy. There's a website, Startup Art Therapy, that continues exploring this four-stage model and she's doing research and all these different things um, oh that's wonderful she also wrote a book called startup and it takes all these self-building interventions and then um sensory motor interventions that i utilize in one uh, manual for we used it she used it in a research in, in um, south dakota with native americans um so in other yes. words, that this has been expanded now and it's really growing the four stage model. Yes, yes. Well, I think this is, you know, a good stopping point for us uh, for the first part of our interview. And I am so going to look forward into getting more into your four part interview. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here of what you what yeah. you developed in that in that beginning um, one hour intervention. So listeners, please come back next week and listen and enjoy hearing from Linda Chapman about her journey as a helper um, using art therapy, play therapy, and um, neurobiology. So please join us next week as we continue. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 